Hey guys, welcome back to the What's Up Grimes podcast, Space Edition. I'm sitting here with MK. Ready for liftoff. Yeah, and our very special guest, this is Dave. Ooh, hey. Woohoo! So we're going to start with talking a little bit to Dave about who he is and what he does and why he's so extra special on the podcast tonight. So Dave, first of all, apparently you're a contamination engineer with NASA. Yes, yes. So that's... It's, it's actually a lot more fun than it sounds like. Um, but imagine if you will, you get a nice Nikon camera, it's got all the fancy lenses, you go out to take pictures and there's dust on the lens. And then, you know, there's a little flare on your, on your picture because of the sun hitting the dust, right? And no big deal, you go wipe off the lens, take another picture. But we're putting things in space. So if there's dust on the lens when it gets there, there's nobody to wipe it off, right? So when we build something that goes up we have to keep it clean from the very beginning. So we get screws and bolts and nuts in and I make sure they get clean. Like every little piece has to get clean. And then we have a special room called a clean room. And then here we have big filters blowing air across the room, sweeping away any dirt or debris that might be in there. And so we build everything in this clean room, keep it clean the whole time. And so when I started, I was in the room, I was you know looking at things with a bright light taking samples in other ways. You know, now I tell other people to go do that, but still a contamination engineer. <laughs> I think that's so fascinating to MK and I, like anything I think NASA related is, is fascinating to MK and I, but we didn't know much about what you did. And I think MK, you don't think about all the different moving parts to NASA that keep things moving. Not at all. You know, you think of like the sensationalized versions, you know, like just, big picture astronauts going to space, you know, and like the control room when they're like Houston, there's a problem. You know, you just think about those tense, like dramatic moments. You don't think about like the little things that go into it. Although I will say, I mean, Big Bang Theory wasn't based in NASA, but I think that was the first show or anything that kind of gave me more insight on like the little details that go into going to space. Yeah, right. Well, so when you see that control room, it's like the tip of the iceberg, right? Yeah. So each of those people, you know, they show all the people at desk and they go around, oh, you know, guidance, go, you know, you know, medical, go, right? They go all around the room. Well, each of those people has a team of four or five other people also on headsets in a different place that's talking to them. So the reason they know they're okay is because their big team of people has told them they're okay, right? And, and so I was on the Hubble Space Telescope uh, and we did whatever, four servicing missions. And, you know, I started in the back room and I ended up at one point in the control room where people were around with the camera. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But we even have people that you call up and there was a, a situation where the astronauts needed to do something unplanned on the Hubble Telescope. And we had a whole mock-up of the Hubble Telescope in a clean room because it has to be clean too. And people went in tried out the activity and then reported back what the instructions were for the astronauts so they would know what to do. And all this happened in like half an hour because, you know, the clock is ticking on their oxygen supply. They're out there doing stuff and they're like waiting to get a, get ahead on this task, you know? Wow. That's so exciting yeah. and scary <laughs> and exciting and scary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, wow. so Dave, what are your hours like? <laughs> like how does that work? <laughs> so, that's kind of the, especially with, with COVID and working at home, the, the downside is 
it's easy to bring work home as yeah. an engineer. You know, like a lot of what I do is I'm answering emails or I'm, I'm crunching numbers in Excel or using software, but I'm doing it on my computer. I can do it at home. So I get things going. So I try, you know, like when it's time to like do kids sports or whatever, like I try, okay, it's the end of the work day. Right. But you know, you get tempted sometimes, check your email, see what's going on. So yeah, you know, when things are busy, you know, you kind of work as much as you need to work. Right. But on the other hand, yeah. like there'll be periods when things are slow. You know, if we go into a vacuum chamber, do a big test, right? It could be like 10 days where there's nothing going on in the clean room. And you're sitting around and going, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll sort my email, delete last year's email. Oh yeah, <laughs> been there. So Dave, how did you get started with this? Was this always an interest of yours? No, I, I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, so I went to school for uh, computers, but then I switched to material science. I went to Carnegie Mellon and the material oh, science awesome. department was really small. And it really was iron and steel making from Carnegie Mellon. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it was cool. Uh, if I'd gotten a job in that field, I'd have been, you know, sitting in a control room watching people pour molten steel into things. That's yeah. you know, one of my friends did that, and he said that was kind of cool too. Uh, but I thought, okay, I'm going to work for myself, you know. And it was right around the time we were getting ready to go to war with Iraq the first time, and people were protesting, oh, let's, you know, let's not go to war, let's have peace, right? And so yeah. me and this friend got this idea. Oh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna sell cookies at rallies. That's how we're going to make money, right? Mm. So we bought like prepackaged cookies, like, like a thousand of them. And we went to like one rally, we sold three cookies and we ate all the rest. And that's <laughs> when I realized, okay, I'm not going to work for myself. I'm going to find an employer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then from there, how did you get involved with NASA? So believe it or not, this was back when you had to look in newspapers, right? There was no internet oh, back yeah. then. So my mom was cutting out things and sending me ads. And this ad just said all kinds of engineers needed. And it was for McDonnell Douglas, uh, which was a contractor for NASA, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I went to the interview and then, you know, it was at NASA and I was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll take this job. <laughs> yeah. It was, just, it was good timing. Yeah. You know, they were hiring and, and I was looking. So. Yeah. And how long have you been with the company? So I, I've been, a civil servant now for, I don't know, 15, 16 years, but I started in 1991. I've had the same phone number since 1991. <laughs> <laughs> My desk has actually moved, but the phone has gotten with me. So same Wow. Day. Amazing. Are you no. from that area near Carnegie Mellon, side note? No, actually I'm from around Washington, DC, which is where I am now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. My husband's from Pittsburgh. So Carnegie Mellon is very well known. You know, yeah. I mean, we're globally, it's a, it's a wonderful school. So I was just curious. Sorry. Yeah, I like Pittsburgh. <laughs> if, if I could have gotten a job in Pittsburgh, I probably would have stayed there. It was, it was a nice place. Oh yeah. We loved it there. It's, it's, it's a difficult place to find a job to be honest. Yeah. Unless you're a doctor or a lawyer, not going to space or working for <laughs> NASA. <laughs> Dave, you said that you're based out of DC. For some reason, I just assumed Florida. Yeah, so there's, you know, the launch site in Florida, Kennedy Space Center, everybody thinks about. And then Johnson Space Center, if you think about it, that's Houston, Texas. Like yeah. Houston, no problem, right? We also launched rockets uh, from Vandenberg in California, which is really a, an Air Force base. Uh, mm. But there's actually, there's a bunch of NASA centers 
uh, like kind of scattered across the country. It's how we get funding. We make a lot of senators happy at once. Oh yeah. Um, but I, I work at Goddard Space Flight Center, which is in Maryland. Okay, I learned something new today. Not to brag to anybody out there, but I went to space camp when I was in fifth grade. And it was great. You did not. In Florida. How has this never come up? Yeah. It was, oh it was my fabulous. God. I know, right? See, now we're talking about it. It's the space episode. Space camp was great. It's everything you see on movies. And then I thought I wanted to be involved in space. Then it turns out I sucked at math. So I became a therapist. But so then you'll know, I was going to tell stories about the big buildings down at Kennedy Space Center, but then oh, you know. Please do. Tell, tell the stories about the big buildings. So there, there's this one building, the vehicle assembly building, where they would take the space shuttle and they'd stick it on the booster rockets. And before that, in the Apollo days, it's where they stacked up, you know, the, the big Saturn rockets, which were, you know, 200 feet tall. And so this building is enormous. It's so big, it has its own weather inside. Like if the if the temperature changes what? suddenly, it can rain inside the building. What? <laughs> yes. Okay. There's a flag painted on the outside of the building and the stripes are as wide as a two-lane road. Wow. Like, like not the length of the stripe, like that's the width right. of the stripe. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a huge building. And the top of the building is covered in I-beams because they thought they were going to have to add another 200 feet onto it in order to build the rocket that was going to Mars. It was going to be called the Nova. Yeah. So what's the point of having a building where it can rain inside? Well, things are just tall. These rockets, like, so when you want to go, you know, put something into orbit to be this communication satellite, right? It doesn't take all that much fuel. It takes a lot of fuel, but the rocket is a reasonable size. When you want to put people on the moon, you need all the fuel to launch basically another rocket that's going to start when you get to orbit. So these things are huge, they're, you know, 200 feet tall. And then to get from the building to the launch pad, there's a thing called a crawler. I don't know if you've seen any yes. of the rollouts. The crawler is just amazing. It's, it was built by companies that build oil rigs because they were like the only people that could handle this kind of construction. But it's got all these doors with like, it looks like a submarine. Like, you know, you turn the wheel to open the door, you know, it's all sealed up into compartments and stuff, but it's all steel and it weighs some ungodly amount. When it rolls out over the gravel, it crushes the gravel into sand and they got to put fresh gravel down every time they roll this thing around. I mean, wow. it's just huge. So I have so many questions and I'm like trying yeah, to like, put them I'm all like, order. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me start with this one. And, and, so Dave has been so gracious because the questions rolled in and, and we'll get to y'all's questions later that you posted both yeah. on our Instagram and through my DMs because people were so excited that Dave was coming on. Let me ask, um, I assume it's like a super exciting day for you when something launches. Yeah, you know, you would think that, right? If it's something you worked on, it's super exciting, but there's so much going on at NASA that half the time, I don't even know, like people say, oh, did you see that launch? Oh, I didn't know there was a launch. Like they send out emails, but you know how emails are. There's like so many oh, emails yeah. that come through every day. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's funny. Like there's just, I mean, there's earth science and there's astrophysics science and there's like people studying the sun. There's just all this stuff going on. And yeah, we know, <laughs> in fact, at where I work, there's 7,000 people at Goddard Space Flight Center. And even on my project, there's, I don't know, like six or 700 people. I don't even know who they all are because there's always people coming on, you know, so yeah. Wow. And, wow. And you said you're, are you remote a lot of the time? Are you like a hybrid I'm hybrid, now? Or yeah. How? So they, they require us to go in at least uh, twice a pay period. 
which is, you know, so Twice once a, a pay week, period. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So it's like once a week. It's like, it's not bad. Um, and that actually turns out that's a requirement by the IRS because the government, the federal government pays you differently depending on where you live. And so if you never go into work, then they're going to change your pay scale to be based on where you live instead of where you work. So, mm. so anyway, everyone has to go in like twice a pay period. Um, but some of us go in more, like it depends on what's going on, right? Like yeah. if I was still the guy that was going in to inspect the hardware, I'd be in there every day because there's stuff going on, right? But because I have minions, I can, I can stay home most of the time. How great was it when you finally got minions? Did you feel successful? It was, it was good. It was a good day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a I great having the minions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fun working on the hardware, but it's also a lot of waiting. Um, so when we build things that are big, right, we have these little cranes. So inside the clean room is a crane that can lift things up. So they, they'll lift something up, but they'll put something underneath it. They'll put it down. They'll bolt it all together. It sounds great, right? It's fun to watch. I have to be there and make sure it's all clean, but it goes so slow, right? Because they don't want to break anything. So there's all these checklists, there's safety guys and quality guys, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and then they lift it up and then they wait again, <laughs> and then they put it down and yeah. they check, you know, and so, yeah, you know, like it's fun, but it's also slow in some ways. Yeah. So, so funny. I'm that person. I'm, I'm the safety risk person. Are you? Which is, yeah. Has, has something happened in your past? Mm, not that exciting. Oh, well, what's, what's the not exciting <laughs> thing? <laughs> now I know. Well, I, it's kind of, kind of go off topic, but I mean, it's like safety, you know, I worked, um, my last job was at a big, like comp corporate, uh, restaurant brand. And there were things that would come up that we would have to be like safety, risk management. And I would oversee like restaurants. Nothing really crazy, exciting, totally off topic. Sorry. But I yeah. understand that type of position because that's kind of my thing, compliance. So yeah. very fascinating. So Grown Dave, adult ladies. What girl? Yeah, you could Dave, work NASA. We have that kind of position in NASA. Are there therapists available? Uh, you know, there, there should be. There are probably like psychologists that deal with the uh, the astronauts and stuff. Like, yeah, well, you know, yeah, isolation there should be. and like, all kind of you know, you don't want people going crazy up on the space station. Yeah, and the pressure of that. So, Dave, what would you say the best part of your job is and the most challenging part of your job is on a day to day basis? So the, the best part about my job is that we don't do the same thing twice. Oh, right? yeah. So I talked about it. I could have been a process engineer, you know, and I would have an exciting day when we got a new piece of equipment in or whatever. But pretty much every day when you're watching a process line is the same as every other day. But for mm. me, every day is different, right? Because we're building things that have never been built before. We're trying to do science that wasn't possible five years ago, right? And so there's always new stuff to learn, always new things to do. Sometimes we fail and we got to try a different way, you know? And so I think, I think that's why I've been able to keep the same job for so long because it's just always new and exciting. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was the second oh, question? Um, the, the reverse. So what's been the most challenging part? Uh, money. I, for some reason, I don't like to think about money. And now that I'm in charge of minions, I also have budgets to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you would think, you know, ah, oh, yeah, I can, 
I can build a rocket, but ah, to make a budget that works, well, that's hard. Um, yeah, that's the part I don't like is dealing with, with that part, contracts and money and that kind of stuff. It's just not interesting to me. I yeah. saw a meme the other day, of course. Um, and the thing about being a manager, the, like the meme said something about like, oh, I finally am a manager. Oh, now I have to manage. And like that felt so <laughs> applicable to my job. It's like, oh, you're so excited. Cause like, oh man, like I finally have people underneath me that can help me out and I'm not going to manage it. Like, darn. Yeah. <laughs> it's way more work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So I have so many more questions for Dave, but I think they're going to make a lot more sense when I jump into a little bit of history, because really towards the end of history, which up to present day really ends with SpaceX. So most of y'all's questions were about SpaceX. Um, so I think we're going to go jump into a little bit of the space history. And I have my facts in front of me, but Dave, please fill in the blanks. <laughs> In the meantime, MK, could you please pull up our Instagram comments? Because some people ask a few questions toward the end. Sure thing. So here's the thing about space exploration and history is that I could do an entire two-hour podcast on it. The thing is that I decided to narrow it down and focus more on the United States. So we start in October 4th of 1957. The USSR launched Sputnik, the first artificial satellite to orbit Earth. January 31st, 1958, the United States made two failed attempts to launch a satellite into space before succeeding with a rocket that carried a satellite called Explorer. What do you know about Explorer, Dave? So have you seen the movie Rocket Boys or read the book? Mm -mm. So <laughs> you should you should look for Rocket Boys. This is really good. Um, there, there was a kid growing up in West Virginia. He was a teenager when Sputnik was launched. And it's his story about how he built rockets in his backyard and ended up going to work for NASA. Um, and and I don't remember if it's in that book or if it was somewhere else, but you know, I've seen stories about, you know, Von Braun and and the the different sort of groups that were trying to figure out like what was the best way to get to space and and you know, those failed launches that you talked about, like Von Braun was like, that's not gonna work. And they're like, Yeah, this is gonna work. They didn't work, you know. So, you know, like people, people were arguing over things, and they wanted to, like, you know, the military wanted to be the first ones to supply the design, and you know, all this kind of stuff. So there was a lot of politics in there that that maybe also contributed to some of that. Um, as far as the the Explorer spacecraft itself, <laughs> I, I can say I've seen I've seen it in the Smithsonian. You know, like they have little models and things yeah. like that, yeah. uh, and I. I know something about some of those old spacecraft because the contamination engineering that I do didn't exist in the beginning, right? When they when they want to put up, you know, a radio beacon that goes beep, beep, <laughs> you know, it didn't require a lot of cleanliness to make that work. Like you can make radios on the ground in your garage and they work, right? Yeah. When they started studying the sun is when contamination engineering became important. They launched this thing called the Orbiting Solar Observatory, OSO. And it looked at the sun and it gave us great pictures for like a couple of hours and then it was dead. And it went, it went dark because contamination that was on the lenses, when you get out of the atmosphere, you've got all that UV radiation from the sun that's not getting filtered. It changes that contamination into something that's just like a dark black mass that just like made it opaque and it couldn't see anymore. Mm -hmm. wow. So they figured out what happened and that was the birth of contamination control. And so I know something about old spacecraft that failed 
because it's part of our learning process of like, oh, and then these guys did this and then that bad thing happened. And then he did this and that bad thing happened. So now we don't do those things anymore. Yeah. And that's so much of space history is trial and error up till present day, trying things, blowing things up, unfortunately, sometimes with humans inside and then trying again the next go around. It's, It's crazy. That brings us to October of 1958. So there was a pace exploration activities in the United States. These were consolidated into a new government agency. This was the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Good old NASA. Before I go further, so Dave was telling us right before we hit record that they get merch for like different tons of merch. And you know, it's good. I, I mean, at some point you need to showcase this, but we'll table that. <laughs> yeah, well, so I, I should point out, like, we, we have to buy it ourselves, right? The government is not just giving us away. I mean, yeah. But, but they merch. arrange with places, you know, like Land's End or whoever to, to make embroidered shirts and jackets and things. And then I knew it was Land's End or L.L. Bean or something. Yeah, They're the best, it, though. That's <laughs> quality. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and they also sometimes they'll put it in order and they'll be like, oh, who wants mugs? You know, so people have mugs with like the little logo for their project on it, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So is your house like full of that stuff? Like do all your kids have stuff? No, I, when I was working on the Hubble Space Telescope, I was what they call the Hubble hugger. So I, like I had a lot of <laughs> Hubble merch because I was like, oh, I love this program. Uh, but I've kind of grown out of that a little bit. I'm like, okay, you know, I don't need to have like every shirt that they make, you know. Dave's saying that, but I have like every SpaceX thing ever that was ever put out. And anyway, that brings us to 1961. The USSR (laughs) opened the era of crewed space flight, starting with the first cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin. So Gagarin's flight, part of the Soviet space exploration program, took 108 minutes and considered or consisted of a single orbit of the Earth. Just one. That's all you got. Yeah, the Russians were interesting because they did not want to give their cosmonauts any controls, right? They they were, I don't know if they thought they were going to screw it up or they just thought they might defect or something. <laughs> they could land anywhere they wanted. I was going <laughs> to say it's the USSR. Like, who's not trying to yeah. get away from the USSR? Yeah. Was there a dog in that one? There, there was a dog do- they didn't bring back, right? That was right. Laika, Laika, I don't know. They, they launched a dog to prove that a living organism could go to space. But, you know, it just stayed in orbit. It didn't come back. A dog yeah, and a monkey. Again, and... the Soviet Union, they yeah. you know, had different criteria. It's <laughs> awful. <laughs> if a dog has to die to beat the U.S., that dog's going to die. Go for it. <laughs> On May 5th, Yikes. 1961, we go back to the United States and the U.S. launched the first suborbital or- orbital. Oh, there orbital. it is. Thank you. Mercury astronaut Alan Shepard in the Freedom 7 capsule. And unlike Gagarian, I swear I'm going to get this. Shepard manually controlled the spacecraft's altitude and landed inside it, thus technically making Freedom 7 the first complete human space flight by the FAI definition. What's the FAI, Dave? I don't know. <laughs> what is that? Federal some aviation something? Whatever. I, no, I don't know what that is. Uh, that probably doesn't me- exist anymore. It's changed its name to something else. Right. right it's the 60s. Then we move on to June 3rd, 1965, the Gemini spacewalk. NASA astronaut Ed White became the first American to walk in space. By the way, I was watching a video today that was like circulating Reddit of the first moonwalk with Neil Armstrong. And we think that went Mm -hmm. so smoothly, but he's like falling all over himself in that video. Yeah. 
I never saw that before. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and the, you know, they, I don't know if they talk about it. Um, I think they mentioned a little bit like in from the earth to the moon in that series, but the dust, the moon dust, they got on their suits and they came back into the cabins with them. It's a real health hazard, right? So that moon dust is really, really dry. It's not like earth dust. And it's, it's really sharp, right? It hasn't been worn down by winds and water and stuff. And so it's this fine dust that sticks to everything and it sticks in your lungs and yeah. And they said it, it smelled like uh, gunpowder, like something burnt, like when they got back into the cabin, you know? Interesting. Interesting yeah. What do you say to people, which I'm sure, whether it's family or friends that are like, did, what are your thoughts on that moon landing actually happening? Yeah. yeah. The conspiracy. Yeah. Of course, I, I believe it happened. Yes, <laughs> um, I, I try Me to too. stay out of those discussions. <laughs> right? You know, there's there's people that still want to argue the Earth is flat. That is yep. like, well, oh, that's you know. that's also true. But that's still yeah, a thing. <laughs> I I do um, I, I do try to oh. point out like NASA can't keep a secret. You know, like have you have you seen all the things that leak out about NASA? <laughs> right. So if there was no moon landing, everybody would know. It would not be you know a debatable point. So. That's an interesting point. I mean, I've heard so many different, like, detailed, you know, conspiracies that, like, Stanley Kubrick shot the like the moon landing. It was all staged, and you know, when I first heard that too, it just made me so angry because it's like <laughs> one of the most American things that to be proud of, you know. Like, yeah. and when you hear somebody talk about that, you're like, what? And you want to like dig it into it and look up, look it up. So I was just curious, you know, as someone that is working for NASA, you must be bombarded with just not just moon landing conspiracies, but aliens. Oh, well, I mean, I think everyone at NASA agrees that there are aliens out there. I mean, woohoo! Yeah. Are they intelligent? All right. I mean, okay, I can't speak for NASA. I should make this clear. These are my opinions. Only, <laughs> not <specific laughs> NASA. We should have gotten that legal stuff out of the way at like the very beginning. Yeah. The universe is so big, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. I mean, to think that this is the only place there's life is kind of silly. Now, if you think about life on Earth, though, right, there was billions of years where it was a single-celled organism. And I think there's some theories that it might have gotten wiped out once or twice with, you know, big meteor impacts, right, but then formed again. And then eventually there was some lucky break and it got to be multicellular. And then, you know, some more billions of years passed. And like in the last, you know, 40,000 years, humans, yay, right? Uh, so it's very reasonable to think that intelligence is pretty rare, right? Like the dinosaurs for a hundred million years, the dinosaurs didn't really evolve very much. They kind of changed shapes here and there, but as long as their environment was stable, they were stable. So. You know, it's all these sort of almost extinction events that eventually led to us, right? But you can imagine an almost extinction event that's a little worse, wipes everything out back to bacteria, right? Yeah. <laughs> or if yeah. it's not, not bad enough, then the dinosaurs keep going. So, yeah, I'm sure there are, you know, life forms elsewhere. And, and there's enough of a universe, there's probably intelligent ones too. But I bet intelligent life is pretty rare. Like we're probably lucky. We just think like, wow, everything's perfect for us because we happen to be here, you know. Right. Yeah. Do you think that life on other planets is as complex as we are? What do you think they would look like? Well, they could look like anything. I think there's, you know, we already know that on Earth, there are 
multiple ways to have life, right? There's that deep yeah. ocean vent where things are based off of sulfur instead of off of sunlight, you know? So, and we, I think we know there's a couple different kinds of possible DNA molecules that we don't use in our bodies, right? So even just within the earth, there's a lot of diversity there. And, you know, I, I think form and function, you know, you're going to find like things that climb are going to have claws, right? You know, because that's good for digging into right, things. They're adapting climb, to their environment. Right. Yeah. But other than that, you know, there's no reason to think, you know, even like symmetry, like two-sided symmetry, you know, why not three? You know, like it could be anything. I still think Elon Musk is an alien, just to be clear. Like, you can't convince me that he's not, so. And I say that with love for Elon. Okay, we're gonna get there. Um, that brings me to something that I had actually never heard of. This was in 1973, and I am skipping a lot of history, guys. Again, I had to convince it somehow. This brings us to 1973 Skylab expeditions paved the way for the International Space Station before windmill-like solar arrays were attached to the Apollo telescope mount. Observations of the sun were one of this space lab's program's primary achievements. Is this what you were talking about, Dave? It's, it's in that same time frame. And in fact, some of the requirements they developed on Skylab. So the, the Skylab windows that the astronauts could look out of, they got clouded over and <laughs> They did that because plasticizers, things that keep plastics flexible, can come out in a vacuum and deposit somewhere else. And if you ever get into a new car, there's that new car smell. That's coming out of like vinyl from the dashboard and stuff like that. That's the stuff we have to get rid of or, or not have at all. And the requirements they developed for Skylab to, to fix that problem, we still use today. Like that's like wow. one of my, my key screening, like when I look for materials lists and go, oh, this material's okay, this one's not, I'm going all the way back to Skylab, the testing they did back then. Wow. The 70s, the era of shag carpets, orange, green, and Skylab. Yeah. Mm. Um, actually, that brought up another question, which is probably a dumb question, but Dave, what is it that's out in outer space that's making everything so dirty? Is it like planet dust? <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> So, so it's it's actually coming from like Earth. space so, dirt. Yeah, so there is you know a lot of dust out there. You know, there's big asteroids like the one that we just you know knocked one out of its orbit a little bit. That was uh-huh. crazy. That, that was great. Um, but there's also a lot of little dust grains and sand and stuff. Um, but what's really making this stuff dirty? The things I'm worried about is what we do on the ground, right? The dirtiest thing in that clean room is the people. Uh, you know, you're it's so true, but I mean, also disgusting. Like, you know, like people are like, let me, let me, yeah, this on we're there, nasty. Right? but you know, yeah. just like your, your outer layer of your skin is constantly shedding and you don't see it because they're microscopic particles. Right. But you are making dust everywhere. You, it's like pig pen, like from the, <laughs> the, the little cartoon, like you're surrounded by this. We'll insert a picture of pig pen right here. I'll do that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> So we, when we go in the clean room, not only do we have these this filtered air blowing, everybody has to wear a special suit that covers them up. And they have face masks, which now like everybody's mask anyway, right? Uh, but you know, you get this hood, and in the really serious clean rooms, they have like things to cover your eyes, like like the yeah. hazmat. Are they like it, officially? It's like hazmat that, suits? but it's you're trapping everything inside. You're protecting what's outside from you instead of the other <laughs> way around. Is it all white in there? Uh, it is, except that we have different colored hoods, so you can tell who's who. Oh yeah, that's nice. Yeah. So like the safety guy might have a red hood, the quality guy has a green hood. 
you know. Do, do you, you switch choose? it up? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's, well, I mean, it's different from one place to another, but like at Goddard, like we have a certain system that we like, use. Red is mine. I'm red. I was just yeah. going to ask MK, what color would you be? <laughs> would you be Probably red? Red. Okay. Yeah. When right? when I go to uh, the place where they make big mirrors, um, they they also make mirrors for the military. And so when you don't have a clearance and you go in, you have to be escorted. And when you go into a clean room and you're all covered up with a mask and nobody can tell who's who, there you get a red hood because it means you're not cleared. And so people know to oh. shut up your conversations when you walk by. That's smart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there a glittery pink option? I, there's pink. I don't know if there's glittery pink. The glitter might come off and pose a contamination hazard in the clean room. Yeah. Yeah, if you've ever played with glitter, you know. Yeah, but there's glitter that's like covered over with vinyl. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like if you make like glittery nails or Yeah, I'm going to say vinyl. You remember what I said about cars and the vinyl? Oh yeah, there, there's <laughs> no vinyl anyway. <laughs> we don't allow vinyl. <laughs> okay, this brings us to the oftentimes tragic space shuttle era. Over 30 years, NASA's space shuttle fleet, Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis, and Endeavor flew 135 missions and carried 355 different people to space. Humanity's first reusable spacecraft, the space shuttle carried people into orbit repeatedly, launched, recovered, and repaired satellites, conducted cutting-edge research, and built the largest structure in space, the International Space Station. The space shuttle pushed the bounds of discovery ever further, requiring not only advanced technologies, but also the tremendous efforts of thousands of civil servers, servants, it's Dave, there we go, and contractors throughout NASA's field centers and across the nation. Tragically, NASA lost two crews of seven in the 1986 Challenger accident and the 2003 Columbia accident. And there's some pretty good documentaries about those out there, and it's they're hard yeah. to watch. Yeah, I, I remember both of them. I remember where I was, what I was doing. The, uh, yeah. the first one, I was in high school, and we stopped classes to go to TVs and everything. Yeah. Watching. Yep. Yeah. I remember that, too. It and was it's, intense. You know, it's the hazard of success is what it was. And, and we have a lot of safety training nowadays to try to like ingrain this into us. But the reason the Challenger accident happened is because they kept pushing the boundaries just a little bit. Like they had a temperature range that was safe to launch in. And then, you know, they got cool, but only a couple of degrees. And said, well, there's margin, right? I mean, you know, engineers always put margin in things. So they launched it a couple of degrees below that. And it was fine. And a couple of degrees below that. And it kept working. And they kept going colder and colder and colder, right? And then there was a big drop in temperature and the engineers were complaining that, you know, this is way outside the bounds of anything we've ever done. It's not safe, we shouldn't be launching, but they had all these successes backed up behind them. The management was like, well, can you prove it's not gonna work? Like, well, no. Oh no. And that, and that was how they, they ended up with it's that. It's a gut feeling too, yeah. you know, if somebody's like, something's not right. Like, it, but listen. they just, you know, they had too many successes in a row and like, you know, management yeah. wasn't willing to take it seriously. So now, you know, everybody, like I said, gets trained. The problem with Columbia was a different problem. Um, a seal, but it, right? But, well, it was, it was similar though. And they call it uh, normalization of deviancy. That's the technical term for it. So when they would launch the shuttle, it's big, vibrating, noisy, you know, it's like monster thing going off, right? And little pieces of insulation would break off the main tank and fall down to the ground, okay? <laughs> Uh, 
And before they launch, they go through and there's a crew that sweeps the whole launch site to make sure there's no loose stuff that's going to blow around and damage anything. But these little pieces of insulation break off and occasionally they, they ding something up. Well, a piece broke off and damaged the, the leading edge of a wing where the insulation was supposed to protect it on re-entry. And because that insulation was damaged, the wing failed and that's why it broke up when it tried to return to Earth. So oh, wow. it, I mean, it was, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't something I think that we realized could happen, but yeah. we knew that the insulation was breaking off and it wasn't supposed to break off. It just, you know, nobody had done anything about it because it didn't seem like it was a problem. And that's the thing where like, if something's happening that you didn't expect, you have to not just let it go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the lesson we learned from that. Like you have to keep digging at things until you understand it and either correct it or know that it's it's safe, you know? Yeah. Well, it's just I crazy. Can kind of apply to all your life, yeah, right? Well. <laughs> like, you know, if you p apply like the scientific method, I guess, to everything in your life, it kind of, you can break it down and kind of figure it out and, and keep growing too. I think that's what's really awesome about your job is that you're always learning and growing yeah. Because there's new things that can be found and new things to be done, which which keeps it exciting. And people need a little bit of that in the rest of their life, too. Yeah, yeah. This brings us to the space station era. Built between 1998 and 2011, the space station has housed humans continuously since November 2nd, 2000. Because molecules and cells behave differently in space... Can you say more about that before I move on? I love <laughs> well, having Dave here. I can like ask yeah. questions. So, yes. So I'll tell you that um, cells are interesting things. Um, if you take a skin cell and you put it on a slide and you look at it under a microscope, it looks like a little brick. It's like kind of cubic shaped because yeah. all your skin cells are packed together. But if you wait for a while, it gets tired of being in that shape and it becomes an amoeba and starts to crawl away. Did you know that skin cells could do this? <laughs> No. For how long? Like fresh <laughs> ones or? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's just, you know, like things things behave differently when they're out of their normal environment. That's the point, right? right? So you put things into zero gravity and, and you, you wonder like, well, what does that do? Like if you're growing a plant in zero gravity, how does it know which way to grow? Which way is up? You know, like there's a light. It can grow towards the light, right? What if you put lights all around it? What will it do? So it's just interesting to, you know, do these experiments and see like, what can we learn about how things work, you know, up in yeah. space that we can't learn on the ground. You know? Yeah, because cells want to adapt. They want to adapt to their environment and performing those experiments show you exactly. I mean, it may not be exact for each thing too. Like if you put the same type of plant, it may react differently, you yeah. know, depending on the plant. There's also a cool thing, uh, it's often called a water bear. I think it might be a tardigrade is the proper name for it. It's a, it's a tiny little creature, like a millimeter long. It lives in ponds. But if you look at it, it looks like it has its own spacesuit on. It's real puffy and bubbly looking. And yeah. if you put it in, in space, it gets all dried out and shriveled up. And then you put it back in water and it comes back to life and goes about its merry way. Like, how does it do this? Don't Science with Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so because molecules and cells behave differently in space, as discussed, 
Research in microgravity helps advance scientific knowledge. The space station is a U.S. national laboratory, which the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, which is an acronym, C-A-S-I-S, the government loves themselves, a good acronym. We know oh, that. We love acronyms. They manage. Uh... <laughs> I, I have to stop you there. So I get it. It's a fun story. So <laughs> we we have so much fun with acronyms. We like to make ones that you can pronounce nicely as names. Yeah, and so that would be ideal. I, I don't know how many hours have been wasted coming up with good acronyms, but it's a lot. And I was there for for one of the Hubble things, the the new science instruments, which we call an SI. It had to go into something to go in the shuttle that we carried up there, like a protective case, right? So we made it the Scientific Instrument Protective Enclosure, S-I-P-E, to site. But we had two instruments to go up. So we bolted two of these things together. And we said, well, bi means two, so we'll make it a bi site. And later, in an acronym list, it was the Bolted Interface Scientific Instrument Protective Enclosure, because you couldn't just let the BI go. It had to become part of an acronym. So you're there making the acronyms? Oh yeah, like we'll sit in meetings and toss around and be like, what about this? What about this? Come up That's with awesome. <laughs> I would just like that job. Just to be there and be like, uh, let's call that a bi plug or yeah. space plug, whatever. There we go. <laughs> like something with space on it. You know, <laughs> they need us there, MK. Can you tell? <laughs> no, somebody's got to make up the name. We'd be so good at that. <laughs> I would love it. Okay, so the C-A-S-I-S manages um, the space station and they manage it for research investigations that improve life on Earth. NASA has contracted with commercial companies SpaceX, Orbital ATK, and Sierra Nevada Corporation to develop science investigations, cargo, and supplies to the crews living in space. So that begs the question, um, Dave, have you ever met an astronaut? I've met astronauts. Totally going to ask that. I've I I have trained astronauts. Oh, hey. <laughs> there, there's a whole story there. So back to the Hubble days, because that's when all the good astronaut work ha was happening for me. Uh, they were going to go into the special, clean, pristine observatory that we made and change out one science instrument for another. And we didn't want them to gunk it all up. So we had rules and they came to Goddard Space Flight Center and they sat in a room and I gave them a little lecture with you know PowerPoint slides and told them what they could do and what they couldn't do. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I met an astronaut. Mm -hmm. I met right. Buzz Aldrin. Oh, nice. How was yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, well, he was doing a book signing at Borders Books. I don't know if anyone knows what that is anymore. But Old that school. was a thing oh, yeah. a long time ago. It's the 90s. Um, he had co-wrote a book with another guy and he was doing a book signing and I asked him if the moon was made of cheese. And I feel like a couple people had already asked him that in front of me. So he didn't seem too jazzed about it. But uh, that's my astronaut story. I felt jazzed about it, even if good old Buzz didn't. Yeah, I, I definitely laughed when I asked. And, you know, I still think it's pretty good. But what you going to do? <laughs> Yeah, if he doesn't have a sense of humor, it's not on you. Absolutely. So guys, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up part one of our discussion with Dave here. Stay tuned for part two, where we're going to discuss SpaceX. Dave's going to answer more of your questions, and we're going to get into the Grimes community.